Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, who is a nationally known gerontologist, a graduate of Trinity University and also University of the Incarnate Word, where she got a master's degree in gerontology. She is the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and is a delightful person to hang around with. Oh, well, thank you. My goodness. All that, too. And you know a lot about aging. I know a lot about aging, and the good news is I know an elder law attorney with a name very similar to mine, my other favorite Carol, Carol Birch, who we've invited to be on the show today to share everything that she knows about elder law. Which is very important. She's a graduate of UT Austin Law School and right here in San Antonio got her BA in English at Our Lady of the Lake University. Uh, Her practice is here in San Antonio. If you go to her website, uh, just Google Carol Birch and it pops up, uh, you list a variety of issues that most folks dealing with elder care issues don't necessarily think about. It's complicated getting old. Well, it is complicated, but I didn't know other people didn't think about those things. What are you talking about? Well, people don't think about trusts, and they don't think oh. about uh, how to handle their money. They don't think about how to deal with powers of attorney. They don't think about uh, end-of-life issues and whether you ought to spill those out, spell those out and how you do that. They don't think about the challenges that may come with uh, a family business where Daddy now has gotten to the point where he can't run it and you need to find a way to ease him or her out of it, all kinds of stuff that you make your living at. I guess it's good that people don't think about it because that means that I come across as very smart when I bring it up. Now, why did you pick elder law? I I assume you picked it long before a few of your hairs turned gray. Well, I didn't really pick it. It picked me. I really got lucky. um, How so? Well, I was doing uh, plaintiff's employment law, and that was really not the right place for me. And it turns out that elder law is the right place for me. I love my clients. They're the best clients in the world, hands down. And um, they come early to their appointments. They like to pay. They don't like to pay my prices. They consider my prices to be um, not 1950s prices. But other than that, they're good clients. They do they, like they, to pay. They, they grumble, but they do actually pay the bill, which makes a difference. Exactly. Uh, Carol Birch, what's also interesting, Carol Zerniel smiled when you mentioned they come early. When WellMed Charitable Foundation first opened its senior centers here in San Antonio, nobody realized that seniors would line up at 6 a.m. Oh, no, it was actually 5.30 a.m. Wow. to use the treadmills. We used to open at 5.30 in the morning. We don't anymore. Um, because we were exhausted from getting up so early. So 7 a.m., they're, they're still lined up. But but I'm curious. You, Ron had a whole list of things that maybe people don't think about, and I am curious if the one thing that people are thinking about is how do I protect everything? You know, how do I make sure that I my assets – you know, stay in the family. I mean, what's what's the number? Is that the number one issue that brings people to your door, or um, is it other things? Wow. 
Well, I guess that making sure that assets pass the way they want them to is an important thing. But I think most people, when they come to my door, are really overwhelmed with what are they supposed to do when they have a loved one who isn't able to take care of themselves and live independently anymore? What are they supposed to do in a whole with a whole breadth of questions from what do we do with the money, how do we find care, which is not necessarily legal. I'm not always answering legal questions. You have a social worker on your staff? She's the social worker. (laughs) It does include a lot of social work, actually, uh, which is very gratifying. That's one thing that makes it so much more enjoyable than just plain old boring law work. Because you help people. We do help people. We give people peace of mind because they have so many questions and they're overwhelmed and they're, it's a whole new area. It's not something that people have ever had to deal with before. So um, it's easy to be helpful. Well, let's talk about, you know, one of the things that I do like to tell people is that there are occasions when you should call a professional. There are times when you really do want a geriatric care manager to come to your home and be the bad guy that tells dad he can't drive anymore or works, you know, gets you and your siblings to sit down and talk about how this care is going to be, you know, going to share the care with the whole family Mm -hmm. uh, and work that out. Because that's something a lot of times families just can't do that on their own without killing each other. Now, before you do that, let me remind folks, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. We're talking with attorney Carol Birch, is a specialist in elder law. So what, you know, what is it that people should really, it's worthwhile to talk to an elder law attorney when they need what kinds of things? Wow. Well, I think that when you need a financial power of attorney, you should talk to an elder law attorney. I just had some folks in my office today The husband, unfortunately, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at age 52, and his wife uh, was clearly overwhelmed with the stress of of facing this. You know, they're in their 50s, and this is not what they expected for their 50th decade. It's so young. Yeah, very Uh young, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's tragic. But they had done powers of attorney, but they had not named alternates. So husband had done a power of attorney appointing his wife to handle his finances for him, and that was working great because she was doing that for him. But I said, what happens if something happens to you? If you can no longer serve, we looked at the power of attorney, no alternate. So had they had that power of attorney done, I think, by an elder law attorney, one of the most important questions would be, We've got to have backup. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You guys know that. You never know what's going to happen. And it's it's malpractice almost to do a power of attorney and not name an alternate. Now, so, did he have the faculty to agree to add an alternate, or was that part of the problem? You could, you, he couldn't make that decision. Well, I'm glad you asked that. I am so lucky that he actually did still have capacity. We talked, and he was uh, cognizant and able— But yesterday, boy, these people just came into my office just so I could talk to y'all today. Thank you. Yesterday I had a husband and wife, and wife had dementia, and he he brought her so we could do powers of attorney for her. And all they needed to do was change one child to another as alternate because one child lived far away. 
and I was asking her some questions and, and getting into some questions, and she was having trouble answering, and he said, well, you know, here's a letter from her doctor from 2014 that says she can't make decisions for herself. And you went, oh, game over. I did, and he was shocked and upset with me, very upset with me. But I said, you know, her doctor in 2014 said she can't make decisions. I'm not going to do a power of attorney for her. And, and that's really, you know, we see that unfortunate incident occur in our caregiver program, and, and we certainly try to help avoid that. Because a lot of people don't realize there does come a point in a dementia you know, journey where if that person can no longer make decisions, you can't just go to the lawyer and you're not, you fudge it, right? Now, there are some people that are on a borderline where on Monday, they can't sign the document, can't articulate anything. On Tuesday, they come in, they can name every child, they can tell you what their child, you know, does for a living, and they can sign the document. But then there is a point where none of that's going to happen. It's just too late. That's exactly right. And I felt very sorry for the husband, and I I was so sorry to have disappointed him. But, you know, as you said, there comes a point. And 2014, that was five years Years ago. ago. So she she hasn't gotten any better. What happens when you have to say, I'm sorry, she can't sign the power of attorney? What's the the alternative? Can you go into probate court and have him named guardian? You can. That would have been the alternative. That was not an alternative he was willing to hear at that time. Right. Um, But had we had an issue that was more pressing and immediate, that's what I would have really um, focused on with him was, look, we've got to go do a guardianship. Right. So changing names, changing small things, that's not worth a guardianship. Exactly. But if it was something major, if it was, you know, property or something big. So so powers of, I heard you saying financial powers of attorney are very important and you want to get them done earlier than later. Absolutely. And you really want to get them done when you turn 18, because you never know what's going to happen. And you end up with someone who's young who ends up, say, in a uh, medical situation, and maybe their parents, maybe they're still in college, and their parents want to hear from the doctor, what's going on with our child? Well, you don't have power of attorney. We can't talk to you. So wow. earlier rather than later. Well, and a lot of people don't realize the court cases, a lot of the court cases for decision-making those, from, those court cases are younger people in their 20s. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's good friend of ours, uh, husband had a stroke. He's in his mid to late 40s, out of nowhere, uh, and was hospitalized. Uh, uh, no insurance. He had his own business. He didn't have insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it caused, uh, in that family, a lot of upset, for sure. Uh, and there was no medical power of attorney, no financial power of attorney, nothing, because they were young. This can't happen to us. Yeah. And I hate to be Debbie Downer, but it can. Exactly. Now, on your website, you have a list, <laughs> which I thought was pretty interesting. 20 years of experience, we deal with wills, trusts, powers of attorney, probate, guardianships, Medicaid, long-term care, planning, long-term care planning, special needs trusts, advanced directives, and a range of other legal services to create the ideal estate plan for your family's future. Now, if someone comes into you and says, all right, look, we're both in good health. We both have all our faculties. 
Uh, we want to take care of getting the documents that we need put together. Tell me in just a minute what those documents would be and, and how you do that first interview with a client who comes in to see you. Stick with us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. Our special guest is Carol Birch, elder law attorney here in San Antonio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, we are so pleased you are joining us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. You hear us on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, and we've got a very special guest, and we're not even paying her for her time, which is pretty cool. Carol Birch is an outstanding elder law attorney, well-respected, has spoken to the Caregiver Summit here in San Antonio that the Wellmed Charitable Foundation puts on and is very much in demand. Uh, I asked you, first-time client, I walk in with my wife and say, hey, look, knock wood, got all our faculties, we're feeling great, so why do we need you? What should we do? Well, why you need me is because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, and there could come a time when you're not so healthy, you need assistance, and you need someone to take care of things for you. So I'm going to talk to you about what your wishes are if you're if you come upon that circumstance well and and what you were looking at on the website for carol was the list of things that she can do for estate planning and so we can even use me as an example because my husband and i did go to carol uh, and talk about we want to get everything in order i had this black cloud over my head i work in the field of aging and i had not done any advanced planning Bad, 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 bad Carol. Shoemaker kids Carol never Zernial. have shoes. <laughs> yeah, so, so we sat down. So talk about those documents that you had us go through to kind of cover our bases for estate planning. Okay. We often talk to folks about your basic plan, which is a will, financial power of attorney, medical power of attorney, directive to physicians, and appointment for disposition of remains. Those are the five basic documents. Sometimes we want to utilize a living trust in addition to the powers of attorney in the will, and that really just depends on what the family situation is and whether we have family members or other folks who can fill positions of trust, serve as agent under the financial power of attorney, serve as agent or executor under the will. Um, if we do have those folks, then those are basic documents, I think, are the starting point for providing 
decision-making capacity or decision-making capabilities if you lose capacity. Now, for those who are listening who most people don't have a will, why should we? Well, if we don't have a will, what happens? Well, it's really Because we're dead anyhow if we, uh, <laughs> if we pass on, right? Well, that is... That is true. That is true. As, as far as we know, <laughs> you're gone. But if you have any sort of animosity towards the people who love you, don't do a will. Don't do powers of attorney because you're going to make their lives harder. If you care about them, you're going to make their lives easier and less expensive if you will do a will and powers of attorney. When you're gone, if you don't say what happens to your stuff, the state of Texas says what happens to your stuff. And that doesn't mean that the state of Texas gets it, but it means that the state of Texas says, well, we're going to make sure that this property passes to someone. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be the estranged uh, child that you haven't talked to in 30 years. It could be that everything passes to the kids and your spouse is left with nothing. And that may not be what your wishes are. That's happened? Yes. Spouse left high and dry? Well, not high and dry. The spouse keeps the spouse's share of community property. But if you have children from a prior relationship and you do not have a will, your share of the community property passes to your children, not to your spouse. Get a will. It's really so much nicer if you do. And then beyond the will, the other documents you were talking about, how complicated is that? What do you need to to facilitate that discussion? What should you bring into the office? Well, a general, a ballpark idea of what your assets are is very helpful so that we know if we're planning for assets that pass outside of probate by beneficiary designation or if we're talking about assets that are all going to pass under a will or in a trust. We want to know who the uh, possible uh, fiduciaries are, the people who can fill the positions of of trust. So you mentioned the power of attorney, but there's two of them. It's not just the financial power of attorney. There's also one for health, correct? That's right. The medical power of attorney is a statutory form, so the state puts out what the document has to look like. And you don't have to have a lawyer to do that. In fact, you can get the financial, the medical, excuse me, the medical power of attorney at the hospital. Now, I don't recommend that you do it at the hospital as you're entering for some sort of medical procedure. That doesn't seem Especially to be an emergency. Exactly. That's probably not the best time to be thinking about who is uh, going to handle the medical decisions best for you. But the financial power of attorney, I certainly recommend that you utilize a lawyer for. Well, and the thing that people might want to think about is that you may not want the person who's making your financial decisions be the same person who's making your health decisions, your medical decisions. That's true. There are two different skill sets. The person who makes your financial decisions needs to be very detail-oriented, needs to be someone who's trustworthy and okay with money. So the person who makes your medical decisions needs to be your advocate with the medical providers and needs to step up to the plate and make sure that you get the treatment that you want and don't get treatment that you don't want. Those are two different kinds of skills. Sometimes the same person can do that and sometimes they can't. Right. I, I, I like the idea of skill sets of, you know, thinking about what is it these right. people can do that's so important as opposed to who do I love? <laughs> you know, who's, who's my favorite son? Who do I get along with? Who do I play gin rummy with? Yeah. 
I have an example of how this can work in, in, in the wrong way without having designated powers of attorney. A good friend of mine's uh, father, uh, his first wife died, he remarried, and he had to go into the hospital, he broke his leg. The doctor calls my friend and says, we've got a little problem here that you need to be aware of. Uh, your, your dad's new wife is asking me to unplug him. He had a broken leg. He wasn't plugged into anything. <laughs> She's ready to pull the plug on him. Pull the Oops. plug, right. She had some good life so, insurance on it. Yeah, I guess. So, you know, the end of the story is my friend went and talked to his dad, who wouldn't believe it. Oh, no. That didn't happen. You know, it wouldn't happen. Did he, ever, did he ever believe it, or did they live happily well, ever well, after? Well, I don't know about how happily, <laughs> but uh, I don't think he ever believed it. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So when I went to the hospital for knee replacement surgery, my wife, Gina, who has a great sense of humor, said to the doctor, I want you to unplug him. Because <laughs> she knew the story. But that is an issue when you designate that power over medical decisions. Uh, some people say don't choose someone uh, who's close to you. Choose someone who's knowledgeable but would be impartial looking out for your best interests. That's true. And family members are... are Often it's the other way. They don't want to unplug family members. That's exactly right because it's too emotional, it's too personal, and that's not a decision that is easy for them to make. So sometimes clients say, I don't want to name this child. This child wouldn't be able to let go. Right. I want to name someone outside of the family or a different member of the family. All right. So we've talked about financial and medical powers of attorney and will. What was the next document you said? Another document that's increasingly important is the appointment for disposition of remains. That And I know it has a great title. It does. Disposition of remains. But that is a document that authorizes someone to authorize cremation. So it, or it appoints someone to authorize cremation, I should say. And as more and more folks want to be cremated, you want to have that. If you don't have that and you haven't made previous arrangements with a funeral home, then the law says that all of the family members, all of the next of kin of the same class have to sign off. So, for example, if you're married, your spouse has to sign off and that's it. If you've got children and you don't have a spouse, then all of the children have to sign off. So you can't cremate someone unless everybody agrees that's the way they want it handled. Otherwise, it's got to be a burial. That's exactly right. Sounds like a law pushed by funeral directors. I have no comment. Just an observation because <laughs> the cost differential between burial and cremation is huge. That huge. is true. So when you think about all these questions, all these issues, and as we take a look at uh, folks who in most cases don't have these papers uh, prepared. Uh, at what time in the medical process, if someone's in the hospital, could you still have an opportunity to sign these papers, to write these papers, if they're mentally competent? You really can do it up till the end, as long as you have capacity. Um, I can't remember the latest I've had a will signed, probably within a couple of days of death. Really? Yeah. Um, now, if you end up in a court case, because I'm thinking of, you know, some of the high-profile cases involving <laughs> wills and documents like this, uh, the question of capacity comes up. Two days before death, if they challenge it, how do you prove capacity and protect yourself as an attorney? You put them on videotape? 
I don't videotape, and partly because if you videotape one when you think it's going to be troublesome, you really need to videotape all of them so that the opposing counsel can't say, "Oh, so you knew that this one wasn't going to didn't wasn't going to fly." Right. I'm grateful to say that the one that was just two days before didn't have anything really, so oh, okay. there was no. That's too bad, but it worked out. <laughs> yeah, that's but too bad. Thank but, you. <laughs> but you have been challenged in the past, right? Somebody yes, has said, "Ooh, they did these documents and they didn't have capacity." What do you do? We'll hear about that in just a moment. Stick with us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We got a little time to squeeze it in. I didn't want to make it too short. Okay, tell the story. Okay, well, um, it might be a long story. Um, That's okay. It, I testify. I was deposed in two different cases and testified about the person and how I met with them without others around, so there was no undue influence, and um, my assessment of their capacity. So then that's the legal interpretation as opposed to a medical interpretation. Yes, which are two different things. Yes, and in both of those cases, there was no medical determination of um, incapacity. There was maybe some impaired capacity, but sufficient All right. for a will. How's the legal interpretation of capacity? What, what are you looking for? Well, um, the basics of a will is do you know what you have, uh, do you know who you want to have it? And can you, do you have the intention of saying, this is my will and this is how I want to divide my stuff? And can you hold all those things in your mind at the same time? And then call you the next day and change it all. Stay with me just a minute. Carol Birch is our special guest and elder law attorney. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host on Caregiver SOS On Air, right here on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're learning a lot of stuff on Caregiver SOS on air today. Carol Birch, an elder law attorney, is with us. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. And, Carol, we haven't, Carol Birch, we haven't talked about, we had a Carol as a guest a couple weeks ago, Carol White from UT Health. We're multiplying. We're everywhere. Yes, you're everywhere. So I need to specify Carol Birch. Yes, please. For family living out of town uh, who want to be part of this process or may not even know the decision-making is going on about wills and trusts and uh, powers of attorney and uh, end-of-life documents. Uh, how do you involve them? Well, that's really up to the client. The uh, client may not want family members, uh, either out of town or in town, to know. Some family members, some clients, don't want anyone to know what they've done and want to keep it very private. Others want me to email drafts to the family members out of town and uh, get everybody's input. It really depends. So in a case like that, uh, an attorney had said to me a while ago, uh, my wife and I were doing a will. Uh, he said that uh, if you have a son or a daughter, not that we do, but a son or a daughter that you really don't want in the will, you're much better off giving them a few bucks than leaving them out. That was the advice that attorney gave me. Really? Yeah. The idea was it makes it harder for them to challenge if they've gotten something. 
I guess it depends on what you mean by a few bucks. You probably buy a few bucks. You, Ron, being the now, I wealthy gentleman. Multi-millionaire multi <laughs> radio personality. Yeah, I worked so in rare. radio all my life. I have nothing. So. Well, let's he meant assume. a few hundred thousand. Well, let's assume I'm our technical director, Roland Ruiz, who in his other <laughs> life is a very high-profile musician and the announcer for Spurs games at the AT&T Center. Right. He's rolling in dough. Yeah, he licks it. So how much should you leave that kid you don't want to give anything to in a case like that? Well, in Roland's case, seeing as how his estate is probably several million dollars, I'm going to say probably 50000 Everybody that's listening to this show right now that knows me is having a big laugh at that. Just wanted you to know. That's right. We finally got Roland to say something. There's a whole world out there that doesn't even believe you exist, Roland. No, usually all he says is Spurs ball. Spurs ball. So that, that, to me that sounds like a lot of money, but mm -hmm. if you've got a lot of money, it's not. Well, you've got to make it worth that child's while to not contest the will. So it's got to be something where they say, well, you know, 50000 or zero, 50000 or zero. Okay, I'll take the 50000 Well, now, I had a relative that had in her will that if anybody con sued or contested the will, they inherited nothing. They waived yes. their right. That's a no contest clause or an interorum clause, to use the Latin. I and like that. I like the way you said that. That sounded good. Unfortunately, Texas currently uh, is treating no contest clauses as pretty toothless. So, um, and she was not in Texas. I will say that. Yeah, and and that's not that's not always been the case in Texas. But current Texas law is it's pretty toothless, and so I don't want clients to to it's, rely on that. Ah, okay. So, you so can't it can be do challenged. That. It can be challenged as long as the person challenging mm. has a good faith. Uh, according to the statute, right. a good faith belief that it should be challenged. Then Now, we all know that biggest problems in families is often over money. And in, in my family, I had an aunt and an uncle who were very wealthy who didn't have a will but had a joint bank account and made one of my cousins, uh, the beneficiary, the co-trustee, under that account. So when they died, all the money went to him which was a sizable amount of money. Mm. And so some of the family, not me, I, I figured, hey, you know, it was their choice. Some of the family uh, went after him to get some of that money with no success. That's correct. When you have a joint bank account, joint with right of survivorship, or you have a beneficiary designated on that, that supersedes the will, that supersedes whatever you may have said uh, verbally, oh, I'm going to share with you and you. So Wait, no, though, what, what do you mean by supersedes? That means that instead of the will controlling who gets what, the designation on the bank account controls. So it's, a, it's like it's, it's a separate entity. It lives mm -hmm. on its own. Yes. Even though my uh, other cousins, asking for, for a friend now, even <laughs> though my other cousins maintain that uh, the aunt and the uncle all said it's going to be shared equally with all of you. Well, that may have been the aunt and uncle's intention. Maybe they didn't understand what a, an account like that is. They might not have. In fact, here in Texas, oftentimes uh, tellers use... Um, I'm just going to cough. Go ahead. <laughs> oftentimes, when you go in to pay, I want to put my son's name on this account, the teller's going to say something like, 
oh, well, you probably want to sign right here, and they're going to note the joint with right of survivorship box, With even though your lawyer may have told you, don't do joint with right of survivorship because it's going to mess up your estate plan. And so people end up having their estate plan done by bank personnel. And they didn't wow. really realize what they signed. They didn't realize it, and they didn't intend for that outcome. So this does happen more than in just in my family. Oh, yeah, all the time. Right, and, and, and they may have thought, He's going to share it with all of them, and he decided right. not to. And he can do that. He can decide not to. He can decide not to. He has no hmm. legal obligation whatsoever right. to share that money. Even though he was the, true story, wealthiest of all the cousins. And that's how he got wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, there's, there's a message there's here. There's a message, okay. And the lesson is be careful what you sign and know what the impact is. That is true. That Which is, is true. why you need a, a lawyer. <laughs> for everything. C-square one. Well, you mentioned, I think we covered the, the basic documents, mm-hmm. but you mentioned something about a living trust. Yes. So in Texas, the probate process, and I know that your listeners are not going to believe me, but because they've been conditioned to believe that probate is some terrible, awful thing. Texas has a relatively smooth and simple probate process. So we don't always use trusts the way they do in other states. For example, in California, almost everybody uses a living trust. In Texas, we use a living trust not to avoid probate, but if other issues are are present. For example, as I mentioned before, we don't have a family member who can serve in a position of trust, uh, like a, a agent under a power of attorney or an executor. Or we have a particularly complicated estate, and it would be easier if we had ever to manage things if we had it all in a trust rather than using a power of attorney. So there are there are times that you want to have something external to the family. It's another mechanism. It is another mechanism, and we can, especially if we don't have anyone available, if we have a large enough estate, we can utilize a corporate trustee like a bank to serve as trustee to take care of managing the funds, managing the estate. That's what the Volkers did who gave the money that ultimately became the Volker Ranch City Parks in San Antonio. They were purchased from the estate and they had given their money to be managed by their bank. Yeah, it can often be a relief to the family members that there's no fighting because there's this neutral third party over there who controls everything. It's interesting. Now, that's an example. They were a couple. Uh, they had a dairy farm, and he was a, a letter carrier, and they happened to accumulate millions of dollars. It's amazing uh, when you think about how that happened. It's amazing. I once had a client who uh, all she had was her husband's re- civil service retirement. He had died. And um, it doesn't sound like much. It's certainly not millions like the Volkers. But here she was, this little elderly lady who lived on the south side in an unair conditioned house Ooh. and had $300,000 when she died. Everybody was like, what? Yeah. What, and, and, and people do accumulate wealth. I mean, you were talking about not everybody goes around telling people. There are, we've certainly had clients where the money's in the mattress in the jar and in the house and stashed, and it all adds up. Or maybe it's in a bank account, and it's a lot more money than anybody thinks. Um, so, so you, so we've talked about the basics. Is there anything else? I think that when Ron was looking, talking about the list, he mentioned Medicaid. What are, what do you help with related to Medicaid? Well, let's say for the example, this, uh, couple with, uh, dementia or with Alzheimer's that came in today, 
at some point, husband is not going to be able to be cared for at home by wife. And we needed to talk about how she was going to cover that, how she was going to pay for that um, when the time came. And most folks in San Antonio don't have five or $6,000 extra a month to just put out to a nursing home or a memory care center. So she needed to know how she could uh, utilize Medicaid assistance to help pay for her care. You also include long-term planning in your list, and which everybody <coughs> ought to have, but they don't. And so long-term care planning is like Medicaid planning, but I don't want to tell people automatically we need to look at Medicaid because Medicaid is not always the most important um, goal. Well, and they may never be eligible for it. There are some people who are never going to qualify for Medicaid. That's true. So we need to think about how are we going to pay for care in the best way possible, preserving assets for the spouse at home, and yet also making sure that the spouse who needs care is getting the care that that is appropriate. And the other one you list is uh, special needs trust. Uh, folks today are outliving, uh, or, the, or the children who may have Down syndrome or other issues, uh, or if they have a parrot, they outlive mom and dad. Yes. And, and so is that what a special needs trust will do? That's one use of a special needs trust. So parents want to make sure that their child with a disability maintains their benefits. So they don't want to leave money outright to that child. They want to leave it in a special needs trust to benefit that child. So they don't disqualify them for services inadvertently because they inherit money. And now exactly. they have assets. Exactly. So the trust is, and it, would that be an example where another relative or a bank might be managing that trust? Exactly. Yes, indeed. I mentioned the parrot as an aside, but there are, uh, and I read a piece recently, millions of dollars a year left to dogs and cats. Really? You had any clients who've done that? Um, yes, we've done some critter trusts, as we call them. Critter but, trusts. But that's to, to pay for the care of the animal, the loved exactly. one animal. Yes. Um, huh. When somebody passes away. But um, is that, I remember Leona Helmsley. Right. That's what was, I was thinking Yeah, of. we were all thinking about Leona yeah. Helmsley, who, for those who are too young to remember, that she was uh, owned all of these hotels in um, New, New York, York City. Manhattan. Yeah, she was way more famous in real estate than the current president at one point. Yeah. And she left all the money to her dog. Her dog. One, one dog. Yeah, poodle, single, I think. Single dog. Yeah. Millions of dollars. Right. So that was more than was necessary to care for the animal. Exactly. Right. So the court said, nah, not so much. <laughs> so so when somebody says, I want to leave my millions of dollars to my one dog, or if they did that, would you have to keep a straight face and say, all right, let's do it? Or would you say, let's think about how that might play out? I think it's my responsibility to say, that's not going to work out the way you thought it would. <laughs> okay. And then try to direct them into a more equitable situation? Well, it's not really my responsibility to direct them into a more equitable situation, but to let them know the state of the law. We definitely can provide for the animal, but we can't give wealth to the animal that's hmm. beyond what's necessary to provide for its comfort. And or, for or, or beyond its life. Do, they also, do yeah. the courts also look at this is a 15-year-old dog? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and for someone who may be a cat lady feeding groups of stray cats, can you leave money to maintain them? 
Yes, I have some clients who've left money to the Feral Cat Association, for example. Well, that's cool. So it's a charity. There we go. Well, it's there nice to know that we can cover. See, we this is why these conversations with you, Carol, are so important. We now we can know we can cover our family members. We can cover special situations for special needs, and we can cover the animals as well. We definitely can. And for folks who want to get a hold of you, what is your phone number? It's 210-892-4555. And you can do that twice on the radio. Uh, 210-892-4555. And I want to be clear that my last name is not spelled like you think it is. No, it's not. It's spelled B-E-R-T-S-C-H. And just real quick, if someone is outside the area, is there someplace online to find elder law attorneys? Yes, the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys has a Find a Lawyer button on their website. Oh, cool. Well, thank you for coming in. We always love talking with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, you take care. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. A thank you again to Elder Law Attorney Carol Birch. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. We bring you Take 10 at the end of each and every one of these programs. Joining us now on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Dr. Jamie Heisman, a psychologist nationally known for his work with addictions and with caregiving, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. And, Carol, you came up with a pretty good topic that uh, Jamie floated. Well, I think that right before we were were, um, on the air, we were talking about uh, burnout And, Jamie, you mentioned a phrase to me, psychological safety, which sounds intriguing. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Well, it's interesting. It's a new concept, Carol, and it it talks about really health and wellness as it pertains to burnout, mostly by medical clinics now. But uh, I'll extend it even further. Uh, The word psychological safety is about ourselves as caregivers, uh, it's about the clinics that we're actually using this concept in, and it's about cultures in general. And let's put it in, like, easy speak, if you will. So if you're a parent out there and you know you want to raise the healthiest child you can, you have to create really strong boundaries, be very consistent in the way you, you raise your child, and create safety. Because we all know that children cannot grow um, if there is, is mayhem, chaos, trauma. They'll stop. So really what psychological safety is all about, and it's been used, as I said, mostly now in in workplaces and and burnout around that, but psychological safety is about feeling uh, a a sense of comfort, a sense of boundaries, 
an ability, if you will, to be able to speak up and talk about good ideas and speak up and talk about your vulnerability to people and not be penalized for it. It's interesting. I saw an article over the weekend about concern on the part of some psychologists like yourself about all the active shooter training we're doing in schools and the fear and trauma it's creating for those kids. Absolutely. And fear and trauma, uh, Ron, is, is the exact sort of uh, poison, if you will, for anybody to grow up as a healthy adult. Um, fear and trauma stunts somebody. You jump immediately into these dysfunctional roles of management. You become, you hide out, if you will, you, or you hero the situation, if you will. But you adapt a role that works best in a traumatic situation for survival. So that natural curiosity, that natural health and, and safety, uh, you don't feel comfortable with, and you grow up quite dysfunctional. So um, in, it, just in terms of burnout, is, is there a relationship to what you're calling psychological safety um, and not burning out to, you know, sort of having a, a, a robust um, set of skills, a, a toolbox to a variety of things to, to be able to use in difficult situations? Um, is it work-life balance? I mean, how would you best describe that? Yeah, Carol, it's all the above. Certainly it's work-life balance. That's huge. And um, to be really safe, you have to really obviously have two feet on the ground. We've talked about this often. Psychological safety doesn't come from when you're the wind is blowing you, and you're standing on, on one leg. So to, to me, it, it, psychological safety is, is strictly about um, developing the, the repertoire of tools within you, which is your mind, your body, and your soul, if you will, as we talk about the three-legged stool, the medical, the psychological, and the social, and making sure you're attending to all three so you personally are feeling psychologically safe with yourself. And how that translates over to the work site is exactly the same way. If you have individuals who are feeling psychologically safe with themselves, they're going to be more likely to use the repertoire of skills of talking and communicating and being uh, spontaneous and being able to feel comfortable in their vulnerability. Well, and we were having a conversation today with um, one of the new oncologists within WellMed Medical Management where we have clinics, and we were talking about sort of the goal of the Caregiver SOS program is to help caregivers feel like they are no longer in a free fall, that there is solid ground under their feet, which is a lot like you're talking about this balance, this three-legged stool, this feeling you're not going to tump over um, and, and you have no control. Absolutely. And you know, psychological safety is really it's also a belief that you'll not be punished well, or humiliated for speaking up, um, that you can really foster, you know, leadership, if you will. And, and I think that, and to your point about caregivers, and I know we were speaking, I think, last week about stigma, I think, again, as soon as caregivers are more accepted by clinics, by physicians, by, you know, providers, by insurance companies, and are a part, a meaningful part of the health care of their loved one. Um, I think that's what will allow them to, to feel comfortable and to come out, if you will, and to create psychological safety. Well, and I think an example of, of that would be, you know, caregivers really are afraid to express the fact that sometimes they don't like the person they're caring for very much or that they wish 
they were no longer caring for them. I mean, there's a lot of negative thoughts that flow through their head, and they're embarrassed by them because this is their husband, their wife, their you know, family member, and yet that's really normal and natural, and they should be able to articulate that um, at a moment where maybe a physician is is requiring more of them, saying, you need to do this and this and this, and they should be able to say, you know what, I can't. I can't do any more. I'm doing all I can. I so agree with you, and that's why I so think that therapy is a uh absolute prerequisite to psychological safety because there you can acknowledge your mistakes. You can acknowledge that all of a sudden you don't like necessarily the person. Um, you can you can make an effort to, to feel like uh, like you're, you, 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 you can talk. You can, you can be inspired with somebody who knows you in front of you. You can actually, you know, get it out in a place and so that you when you do come out with your loved one, you can create a safer environment. You can create psychological safety. Don't forget, not just for ourselves, but for those that we take care of. Now hold that thought. We'll come right back to you if you just joined us. You're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Uh, Dr. Jamie, Carol mentioned something that I think happens more often than not, where the caregiver, often a daughter or mostly daughters and some sons, are caring for someone, maybe a dad, an uncle, an aunt, that they don't really like. Is it okay to say, you know, I'm not going to do this. Figure it out yourself. Bye-bye. And if you're meaning to say that to the family, or are you meaning to say that literally to the carry and a loved one? Well, it'd be to the family. So there you go. So there's the first step of what we call intervention. And I think it's very, very important. And I think it's, again, fear of not being punished it's important that somebody can articulate that to family members and sit down in a very safe environment. I would always suggest to have a third party, somebody who understands the world of, of geriatric or, or gerontological issues, um, to be able to facilitate that, because as we all know, those type of discussions lead to heated emotional issues. But yes, Ron, I think you're, you're spot on. I think bringing the family together with a third party and being able to articulate that will allow for a a better solution, if you will, more psychological safety for all the family members and taking care of their loved ones. Well, and that goes back to what you started with, which was boundaries. And so if we, going into a caregiving situation, lay out some boundaries, this is what I'm willing to do, this is what I'm not willing to do, you know, I'm not going to change diapers, I'm not going to bathe mom, um, I'll cook, I'll clean, I'll make sure she's safe, but you got to bring somebody else in. Uh, somebody else is going to have to do some of the personal hygiene things. That, you know, it's important to articulate that. Oh, I think you're so right on target, Carol. If, if more families were able to be, you know, say that and to be able then to delegate and be able to put the consistently what they feel as opposed to being, let's say, the hero and putting a cape on and, and jump into it, uh, and burn out in the process, I think caregiving would, would be, you know, uh, much better served by that. But is there some guilt that goes along with that, the person who says, you know, I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this? Do they then feel guilty about it, and how do they manage that? They do, Ron, and we've often talked about in the show, guilt is a de- definite correlation to self-esteem. So the higher our self-esteem, usually the lower our guilt. And so it's important, I think, to take care of ourselves, um, to be with the family members, if you will, and, and be with your therapist and get into social support uh, group settings 
uh, do things that really increase your self-esteem so you don't feel guilty. But don't go isolate on it on yourself and don't go isolate on the world because that's what usually happens with guilt. Uh, it's so critical to, to connect and be around support circles. So I think the last word on this issue is, you know, set, know your limitations. It needs to be okay to articulate them, uh, and you've got to create balance in life. Jamie, thank you. Thank you, Carol. And You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air, Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.